my name is Biang Liu. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Sourcegraph, and I drink my coffee black. Hello and welcome everyone to the MLOps Community Podcast. I am your host, Dimitri Os, and I'm flying solo today, talking to Be Young. Wow, what a conversation. I loved his idea of context is all you need. That is all I'm going to say because I do not want to give away too much. He's been working at Sourcegraph for the last 10 years, building it out, absolutely crushing it. And recently they released Cody, which you may have seen around different code bases, or you may have actually played with it in your own code base. It's this way to query and level up your abilities of understanding the code that is in your code base. I want to give him a huge thank you because this conversation was just spot on. They brought large language model capabilities into Cody and he was an open book about how they've been using it, what the hard parts have been, his vision for what it could be in the future and even what a developer could be in the future. I loved the little roads and side quests we went down today in this conversation. Let me know if you like it by liking and subscribing. And of course, leaving a review, it would mean the world to me. Share this with a friend if you're feeling especially nice. And without further ado, let's get into this conversation. Young, you started Sourcegraph 10 years ago, you told me. What were you doing before that? Uh, prior to that, I was a software engineer at Palantir Technologies, uh, which I think most people have heard of now, but they do large-scale data analysis for government and large corporations. Yeah. And so then what gave you the inspiration to do Sourcegraph? Uh, the inspiration was, I think, twofold. Um, one was, as with many developer tools, I think part of it was just scratching my own itch. Um, when I took a step back and thought about like the day-to-day pain points of software development, I realized that I was spending an inordinate amount of time trying to read and understand and make sense of the code that already existed and just like figuring out heads or tails what was going on there. Uh, so I really wanted a tool uh, to, to alleviate that pain. Uh, and the second thing was actually uh, our experience at, at Palantir. So I, I met uh, and worked with my co-founder uh, Quinn there, and we were on a team which was essentially drop shipping into large enterprise code bases and trying to build software effectively in that environment. And that was really an eye-opening because it was, uh, as you can imagine, uh, extremely large, old, and complex code bases. And the, the pain points were even greater for the software engineers that we were collaborating with on the customer side. You must have seen every type of code base imaginable i can only like do you have more <laughs> stories from those days uh yeah definitely so we were working with a lot of kind of like financial services and and banking clients at the time and what was mind-blowing to us is you know so, some of these so, when, when you think of like software development pains i think most people think of like oh you know like you had to get merge conflict and I have to go through and like resolve a bunch of things. Uh, we encountered teams that were literally emailing uh, blobs of code back and forth because they're oh, trying to satisfy no some way. compliance requirement. So like they would email lawyers like, hey, here's the code change I want to make. And you look this over. And it was just crazy to us that uh, in 2011, uh, that was still happening. Yeah, I've heard about data science teams 
doing all of their experiment tracking in Excel files. And then once they figure out the model that they want, they yeah. just send the Excel file to the DevOps team and <laughs> say like, now it's your problem. So it kind of feels like that was your life back then. Yeah, pretty much. I think as much as we developers like to gripe about, you know, more modern tools, it, the, the reality is that it could be much, much, much worse. Yeah. And so then you you thought, all right, well, I am struggling when it comes to understanding these code bases and seeing the developer productivity just wane. And you decided, why not make a tool out of it? Uh, and I guess the question that I have is, how were you so confident that a technological tool was the solution? Because it feels like it's almost like you need a part tech and part education for the coders. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I think when I took a step back and looked at what was taking up time day to day, it, it was largely this uh, this thing of like, hey, I need to go make some change to this existing code base. But before I can actually get started writing the feature, I have to go and understand a bunch of different pieces uh, that already exist and how they fit together and how they're related to the change that I want to make. Um, and uh, I, I had some points of inspiration for how I might go about solving that. So I had previously uh, you know, done a brief stint at Google and Google has a, an amazing internal development ecosystem and sort of like the the centerpiece, the shining star of that ecosystem was uh, this tool called Google Code Search. Um, and the uh, what Google Code Search provided was the ability to search across the entire uh, mono repo inside Google and uh, navigate the code. So you didn't have to set up any kind of like local development environment to be able to jump to definition or find references. And to me, that was sort of like the bread and butter of what I did day to day as, a, as an engineer. And so um, I started thinking about how could I construct a tool uh, like that, but outside the the confines of Google. Um, and in the meantime, my co-founder uh, had also experienced some similar tools in open source. So there's a number of open source uh, code search engines that people have created and used over the years in different communities, um, OpenGrok uh, and uh, Hound and, and things like that. And so uh, that was kind of like the rough picture in our minds, like, hey, those tools are useful. How can we build that and make that uh, kind of accessible to every developer? And so then that was 10 years ago, right? Now, how have you seen that landscape change over the past 10 years, if at all? I imagine there's still banks that are emailing <laughs> around code snippets because of compliance issues. But what what do you feel like the evolution has been? Yeah, I think the, the development world has come a long way. I mean... Um... Uh, a lot of those uh, banking code bases were kind of a point of inspiration from a, a pain point point of view. And, and now we're fortunate enough to have a lot of those banks as our, our uh, customers. Turns out, you know, we, we were solving a problem that was not just inspired by the pain points we encountered. It actually uh, ended up yielding a solution that was, was useful to a lot of those organizations. Um, but to your point earlier, um, I think one of the things we underestimated was just a how much education it would take to educate hey. to the kind of like developer mass market about the usefulness of a tool like code search. So yeah. in the early days, even through till, till now, I think the the developers that um, like best grok the utility of code search are still folks like people who did a stint at Google or people who did a stint at Dropbox or Meta. Um, these are places where 
they felt the pain point so severely, they built their own internal code search engine. And then it became one of the, the tools that people rely on day to day. But then a lot of developers, if you haven't worked uh, in an organization like that, you don't have any strong priors for what code search is. So you're like, oh, is it like control F in my editor? Or is it like grep on the command line? And it doesn't really click with people um, in, in a short amount of time. And that remains to be uh, kind of like a big, uh, I guess it would technically fall under the umbrella uh, umbrella of you know developer advocacy or, or marketing for us. We, this, this issue of educating um, the vast majority of developers about how to use this tool and why it's useful to them. Yeah, I, it's that jumped out at me right away is how you need to have this tool needs to land with someone who understands the value of it. Yeah. It needs to be something that people have felt that pain and they realize there's got to be a better way because yeah. I'm pretty sure my friend at XYZ company, he's not spending or she's not spending two hours a day just trying to understand what this five lines of code actually does. And it's poorly documented or the or the documentation that is there says, do not change this, whatever you do. <laughs> it's like, wait, why? Why can't I change this? And you don't want to know. Just don't yeah. do it. So that uh, that feels like something that you are trying to fix. Now, you set out to build a co code search engine. I, I mean, search in 2010 feels like it was in 2011. It was a whole different beast back then. How has your infrastructure and what you're doing around search changed? And especially just in like the last two years, because with all yeah. of the advances, I would say in, in search, in the last two years, you have yeah. to have done a lot of upgrading, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. So so the domain of search has changed a lot in the past 10 years. And, and specifically in code search, one of the things that we started out building and prioritizing that I think was, was a step forward in terms of uh, tools that were publicly available was uh, we viewed it not just as a, a strict search problem per se, but also, um, you know, what do you do after you click into a, a result? Um, when you're trying to understand a piece of code, uh, you click on that result and then you're staring at a code file and uh, a lot of what you need to do is uh, do things like jump to definition or find references. You're essentially walking the reference graph of all the different components that fit together. You're trying to understand, you know, what those nodes are and what the edges are in terms of how different parts of code relate to one another. And uh, we, we started out by focusing on constructing that uh, code graph. So essentially compiling the universe and extracting the symbol tables so that we could uh, execute a jump to definition or a find references request without the user having to go through the rigmarole of you know, getting the, the code to build, which is uh, you know, an, an exercise uh, in itself. Um, and so I think like the first big advancement we created was this like uh, graph concept. We're essentially like mapping and, and graphing all the code in the world and feeding that into our product as both a code exploration tool and a signal into uh, the, the search side of things. Um, more recently, uh, we've been looking at incorporating uh, AI-based signals into uh, the search results and the search relevancy. Um, I actually had a background in machine learning way back in the day. So I did uh, my undergrad thesis in computer vision, um, but that was like one or two AI no revolutions way. ago. And so back then, the, <laughs> the, the quality of the, the models wasn't anywhere near to where we would thought it would be useful in production. Um, but in the past couple of years, 
things have just come uh, so far so fast, and we're now in the process of incorporating large language models into many different parts of our product, both in kind of like the generative sense of like, hey, can I ask a question and get an answer, or can I get it to generate some code, as well as baking um, kind of signals informed by models into the, the ranking of the, the code search uh, engine itself. What do you mean by that? Second use case? Yeah, so um, for for a long time, the 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 main interface to uh, source graph code search was uh, supporting string literal and regular expression searches. So the idea is that you type in a partial string match or a regular expression uh, describing the pattern you were looking for, and we supported that at both kind of like a textual level and a symbolic level. So you could actually type in a regex that matched like a symbol name, a function name that you're looking for. And we were smart enough to extract only the function names and, and eliminate matches that were not symbolic. Um, but more recently, we've been trying to build a, a query interface that is more accepting of kind of like natural language queries. Uh, and there's two types of natural language queries. There's kind of like a fuzzy, kind of almost keyword style search uh, that's similar to what you might type into Google. You know, when you, when you search for something in Google, you don't necessarily articulate it in grammatical terms, you just kind of like blurt out the first couple of, of half-formed uh, words that come to mind, and somehow like the result you're looking for is almost always at the, at the top. Uh, and then the yes. second form of natural language is, is when you actually do articulate it in grammatical terms, and we want to support uh, both types. You know, the former because a lot of queries are just like ah, you know, like SAML, SSO, whatever. Like I'm I'm, I'm envisioning like a, a function in code. I want to jump straight to it. Eat type out like your your first uh, half-formed thoughts and then we get you instantly there. Uh, and then the second part is when you are trying to articulate precisely like, hey, I'm looking for the thing that connects to this thing and, and that thing. And so you kind of write out a complete uh, sentence describing what you're looking for. And we want to support both. And in order to support those types of queries, you have to incorporate um, uh, AI in, into the, the stack in some way because otherwise you, you just wouldn't be able to, to do that kind of like level of fuzzy matching. Yeah, it seems like on the one hand, if you're just doing the Google search style, then the AI, I'm not sure where it comes in. I understand on the other side where yeah. if you're writing almost like a prompt and you're prompting yeah. it to say, hey, where is this? What is it? I want to see. I want to know what's going on. And you're a senior developer, yeah. so tell me in a nice way. <laughs> yeah, so in, in, in the keyword style search, where it comes into play is... Um, uh, I think as you know, and as most of your listeners know, there's these things called embeddings that there are the internal representation of language models. It's how the language model uh, represents a, a string of text. Uh, and those turn out to be like pretty decent, uh, decently useful for searching for stuff. So basically you you map the different functions in your code base to embedding space. So you're essentially generating these large numerical vectors that represent uh, in some sense, the semantics of that piece of code. And then you have the user query, which you also map to that same space. And so you have these two vectors, one representing the user query and one representing a snippet of code. And then you do kind of like a dot product between them, which tells you the, the distance they they are between each other in semantic space. And then when you're doing a, a search, it's essentially like a nearest neighbor match between those two points in, in embedding space. And so what that allows us to do is um, it permits us to to reveal kind of like fuzzier level results. So in standard keyword search, you kind of have to still get like bits and pieces of the actual keyword. So if I'm looking for like, a, um, I don't know, uh, uh, I guess to use the auth example again, because um, I've been yeah. about auth recently. 
uh, you know, OIDC is like an auth protocol. And so I'm, if I'm looking for the the handler that supports OIDC in my code base, um, with keyword search, I'd probably have to type in like OIDC or OpenID Connect. And that would be at least like a partial match against what I'm looking for. But with the more embedding style search, you could type in, you know, SSO handler or SSO handler based on OAuth or something like that. Mm. And those terms oftentimes are close enough in semantic space, in embedding space, uh, to yield a search result that you otherwise would not have gotten with just standard keyword search. You guys must have been using vector databases for a while now. I get the feeling like you were doing these embeddings before they were cool. Is my wrong to say that? Uh, I think we were a little bit ahead of the curve. So we started looking into these signals uh, probably late 2021, early 2022. So we got a, a head start by a little bit. Um, but I, I would say what, like, we're not experts in vector databases per se because a lot of the nearest neighbor searches uh, that we do are actually um, still within the scope of, of a single repository. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is... Um, that's on the order of like millions of results. And if you're dealing with that magnitude of results, then uh, a for loop uh, works pretty well. You literally just like scan through uh, all the things in your index and and dot product is is pretty cheap. Uh, and so you can do that and, and it's pretty fast. Um, Good. I think we will start to get more into vector databases in the coming months when we, we start thinking about scaling this nearest neighbor search to a larger corpus of code beyond the scope of, of your, your current repository. Okay, I like that. And now the other piece that I was thinking about as you were talking through this is, can you break down what the actual tech is behind this? Because it feels like you, I'm not sure if over the last, whatever, 10 years, mm-hmm. you've had to completely replace how you're doing things or if you've been able to bolt on these new features on top of it. And so yeah. what is what does it look like? Yeah, so there's it's been a combination of both. So we have like a completely brand new product, which is Cody, our AI coding assistant, which we we basically built from the ground up. Um, but also we, we've been able to incorporate uh, a lot of the AI signals into our existing code search engine without rewriting that from the ground up. Um, so our, our current code search uh, is is still primarily keyword based, but it's probably going to evolve into a system that it has kind of a hybrid backend. So where we're using both keyword search and embeddings based search as underlying um, uh, search providers. So both of those will go and fetch like a an overset or a superset of results that might be relevant to the user's query or, or request, and then we'll have a, an intermediate layer. Uh, that's also an AI enabled that re-ranks the results from both um, to bubble up the most relevant results uh, to the top. So happy to chat about either. Um, I think both are extremely interesting uh, problems, both the, the, the challenge of incorporating AI signals into an existing product, uh, as well as developing a, a new product from the ground up uh, that takes advantage of what LMs are capable of these days. I feel like let's start with incorporating AI into a product that you already had, because I get the feeling a lot of people are in that position and i like (laughs) to make the jokes that most product managers are going crazy right now roadmaps have been completely thrown out the window and everybody's asking them what their ai plan is or if we can add ai to this yeah so i feel for them Uh, this one goes out to all those product managers but 
what did it look like for you? Like, how did you decide to incorporate it in? And then how did you actually make it happen? Yeah. So, you know, how do you incorporate AI uh, into your existing product without upending your entire organization, especially when probably your CEO is breathing down your neck and saying, you know, hey, what's our AI strategy? What's our AI strategy? Um, I think that's a pattern that uh, we've witnessed across the board. And to some extent, you know, we're experiencing that ourselves. Um, you know, yeah. I, I think we're in this weird position right now where uh, everyone, uh, almost everyone uh, sees the potential of these technologies, but um, not everyone has thought through precisely uh, how they can be made useful in their particular domain area. And so we're in this weird position of there being just like a lot of top-down pressure to adopt, you know, AI in in some sense, but um, with not a lot of clarity uh, on the ground uh, in terms of how to incorporate it. And, and usually it's the opposite, and, right? Like, you know, you're, you're in the weeds of the product and you're kind of iterating against user feedback and you have these insights that kind of like bubble up to these top-level insights. Um, Whereas, whereas now we're trying to go with like the top level mandate of like, hey, you know, embrace AI. And then it's like, oh, but yeah. how? Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know if like I'm I'm an expert on this matter, uh, but I, I, I think, you know, in, in ter- when, when we come to trying to like grapple with, with this task, I think what we found works best is um, you always got to start with with something like simple, I, I think, and, and something mm-hmm. that's within the bounds of your comprehension. You don't want to go and try to like take on uh, the big, uh, uh, you know, uh, dreamy task head on. Like you don't want to go and, and try to start building AGI before you have yeah. kind of like basic primitives uh, in place. And so for us, I think we, we started with, you know, from the point of view of uh, improving our existing product, we started with uh, the question of like, okay, um, what are the capabilities of large language models? Um, there, there's a couple of interesting applications that uh, seem to have emerged. One is, you know, co-generation. Uh, another one is kind of question answering. Uh, and then uh, a third one is uh, this kind of embeddings-based search where you can have kind of this like more fuzzy or semantically informed uh, inf- information retrieval mechanism. And so what are the different products, uh, or sorry, what are the different parts of our product that could take advantage of of those abilities, and then let's start by kind of like rolling in some of these signals in a way that improves upon the baseline. So the first thing we did was take an off-the-shelf embeddings model and uh, do nearest neighbor search on that and see what kind of results we were able to get to augment our existing uh, kind of like trigram regex-based uh, search. And the initial results were. Uh, pretty poor overall, um, but with like some glimmers of promise, you know, like 95% of the time you're like, why did it think that these two were, uh, you know, this, this symbol was like close to the user query. That's complete garbage. But then there was like in that 5% of the time where like, oh my gosh, like it actually found two things that were semantically pretty close, but had no keyword overlap. And so like, that was the initial thing. And we iterated on that and, you know, uh, started to to fine tune the embeddings model a bit and and iterate on on improving that and that was kind of how we did our toes in the waters uh, initially and i get the feeling you had to have been looking at all different types of use cases and one that i think about especially for what you're doing is hey let me highlight this group of code or let me just like ask of this repository, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, and right. Getting an answer back, right? What made you not 
go with that? Or maybe that's something that is on the roadmap. Yeah, so that's something that we we support now in the form of Cody, which is our uh, AI-enabled editor, ed- editor extension. So you can ask Cody a question about your code base. It will do a bunch of searches on the back end um, and then answer your question as best it can based on the context of your code base. But in the beginning, we didn't do that because when we started investigating large language models, this was before... Uh, ChatGPT was released. So um, GPT-3 was kind of like the most advanced, generally available model uh, at that point. And uh, I think what we and a lot of people discovered is, you know, GPT-3, uh, you know, it had kind of all the the, the um, basic capabilities that were later found to be present in, in ChatGPT, but um, the amount of prompting that it took to unlock those capabilities, you basically couldn't unlock it uh, reliably enough. Uh, and so uh, with just the base model of GPT-3, you, you you couldn't just like place relevant snippets of code in a context and then say like, hey, can you answer the, the user's question based on these existing snippets? It would just go off and like, you know, try to complete some other piece of text that it, it thought was relevant. Um, what changed that was uh, the release of ChatGPT when, uh, you know, the, the fine-tuning um, to make it, uh, like, better at question answering and also um, the, the kind of logical synthesis capability to the extent that, you know, LLMs can reason, um, that made it a much better model for this use case of, like, hey, you know, what the heck is going on in my code? Can you explain it to me? Yeah. So break down Cody then, because I guess I was under the impression that it it didn't have all those capabilities, but it seems like I was totally off. Give me the breakdown on what Cody is, because it's it's like a chat with your data type bot that or yeah. QA where your data is not like a Notion document; it is your repository. Yeah, definitely. So, um. Cody has a, a couple of um, main interfaces. So the, the the two main ones are one is inline autocomplete. So as you're coding, it will autocomplete uh, the code that you're trying to type um, based on the context uh, of your code base. Um, so it fetches context from different parts of your code base, tries to take hints from signals in uh, the code that you're writing to determine what other snippets of code might be relevant to pattern match against when it's completing uh, the code that you're trying to write. Um, the second interface is more of like an explicit prompting interface. It's it's more akin to ChatGPT, although we don't like to say the word chat because um, I think open-ended chat is actually not a great way to present the capabilities of the language model in the context of coding. So um, our chat, so to speak, is more like a natural language REPL of sorts where there's uh, commands uh, that represent common things that you want to do through explicit instruction. Um, things like generate a unit test or explain mm. some hairy piece of code or generate some documentation for a piece of code. Um, and those are things where you would write out an explicit set of instructions like, hey, can you explain this selection? Or I'd like to generate a unit test for uh, this code. Um, and then you hit enter and then in the transcript, uh, either inline in the code, so where you've made a selection, there's kind of like a text box that will appear there, and you can have a conversation that's attached to a specific range in code, 
or you can have it just like general in the sidebar. So think of it as kind of like a, a terminal of sorts, but it understands like human language. Mm. Um, you you enter in your query there, and it will either respond with an answer to your question, or if you ask it to generate some code, it will generate some code that follows the instructions that you provide. There's so many cool things about this. The big question is, does it tell you why you can't delete that one piece of code that is commented on <laughs> never touch this code so it, it can um it, it can provided that the uh, underlying context fetching mechanism uh, discovers the relevant pieces of code to answer that question uh and so one of the things uh, that we think is unique and differentiated about how Cody works is the content, uh, sorry, the, the context fetching mechanism. Um, so we have this catchphrase that we started to say, uh, uh, which is context is all you need. Um, hey. so it's kind of like a riff on the, the attention is all you need paper title. Um, but essentially what we found is that the quality and accuracy of responses from Cody, whether you're doing inline autocomplete or answering a question uh, in the more explicit REPL interface, um, probably like 95% of the time it's dictated by, hey, did you fetch the relevant of uh, did you fetch the relevant pieces of code uh, into the context window of the large language model? Because if I'm trying to answer your question, so let's say your, your question is like, hey, why can't I delete this piece of code? Now, if underneath the hood, we go and find, you know, maybe we do like a find references or a go to de definition to understand like where that piece of code is being used elsewhere in the code base. And then that snippet of code uh, shows that the function is being invoked in a certain way. Uh, then using a, a, la a language model like ChatGPT or Claude or an equivalent chat-based model, uh, those models are generally good enough uh, at doing kind of like some primitive form of logical reasoning where I can say like, oh, like here's a comment saying like, don't change this. And then here's an example in the code of using that function in a particular way, and then it's able to synthesize those two facts into an answer explaining why that comment uh, exists. On the other hand, if your context fetching mechanism misses uh, one of the snippets of code, let's say like it can't find any usage examples for whatever reason, then the model will just uh, more likely than not make up some BS answer as to why why that is, you know? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I get the feeling it's like, if only it was that easy where it was that piece of code could be linked back to another piece of code. I feel like on those really hairy databases or, I'm sorry, uh, code bases, yeah, what you get are like five different layers of code being dependent on other code. And then what you have, I don't know, I would love to see if, the search could pull up every piece of it and follow the breadcrumbs around. Yeah. So the short answer is today it doesn't because we okay. haven't made it good enough yet. Um, but we're on the track to, to getting there. So essentially the intuition that we're following is 
you know, if you gave a human that task, like let's say you dumped a human into this code base and said like, hey, we need to change this code, despite no there way. being a comment that says like, do not change this code for these reasons. You know, there's some feature we need to build. Uh, you as like the hapless human would have to go in, like you would use that as your starting point, but then, you know, you might think of some searches that you might want to do like, oh, like related pieces of functionality to surface uh, potential needles in, in the haystack. Or you might do like a find references or a couple of go to definitions to, to do kind of like a search around and, and find surrounding code that's relevant. And over time, you'd incorporate those snippets into like a general picture of what's going on in the code base uh, until uh, you have enough relevant snippets of code kind of paged into your working memory to, to make an attempt at uh, actually editing the code in a way that doesn't completely break the system. Um, and so that is essentially what we're trying to make the AI do. Um, I don't think like the, the AI is not going to come up with some like magical insight. Uh, you know, it's not like you dump the entire code base in and it just magically pops out with the answer. Like that's, that's not how things work. Despite, you know, all the hype around AGI, I just, you know, th these LLMs in practice just aren't, aren't there uh, yet. Um, and so what we are building um, is basically a, a, a system that can replicate the process of how a human uh, understands and uh, surfaces relevant pieces of code in the code base. And then over time, like the, the first step is we have to have reliable primitives. So like the one, the, the answers that are answerable with like one hop, you know, like a find references or a go to definition request. Like if, if the answer is answerable based on the snippets you can get from that one hop action, uh, those are the ones that we can do a reasonable job uh, of answering now. And then once that's reliable enough, we'll do two hops and then the three hops. And then at some point we'll work our way up to maybe this thing that feels kind of like semi-autonomous in terms of how can it, 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 it can explore and uh, discover things in the code base. It just reminds me, I heard a story back in the day and I can't remember where I heard it, but it was something along the lines of an engineer looking at a code base and reading the comment and the comment said, do not delete, you stupid idiot. Something like that. And <laughs> the, the guy looked and it was like, man, that's pretty harsh. Like, that seems like some really aggressive language for this simple function. And yep. where's this function? Even it's not useful. Let's like try and dig into it. And they were digging into it for the longest time. And they came to the conclusion that it wasn't actually being used anywhere. And so... They went ahead and they said, you know what, like whoever did this last was exaggerating or since then the code base has been updated and, you know, there's no more dependencies on this function and they yeah. deleted the function and then it crashed the whole system and <laughs> they had to roll back. And from there they went and they dug up who wrote that comment. Turns out it was the same engineer who deleted it it was, it was like hilarious. them talking to themselves <laughs> but like three years back they were saying it and yeah. they probably did that whole thing and went through that whole cycle and so they they had to uh go through it again so it's uh, one of those things where that's yeah, what cody's for it's one of those things and look like i don't think the ai will ever get to the point where it's like oh, like, I just understand everything there is about the world, so I know why this thing needs to stay uh, because of, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm generally intelligent, I'm super, super intelligent, and by some magic, I, I just know the answer. 
what it's going to do is just allow you to more rapidly explore the channels and the pathways that you know that you should be doing when you're trying to like get a comprehensive answer to a question that you have anyways. But you, you don't end up doing a lot of that now because you're like, ah, like it, I've already sunk like so many hours into trying to figure out this one thing. I haven't even written a single line of code yet. It, it, mm -hmm. It's essentially like accelerating and automating the toilsome parts of the job so that we can do a more thorough uh, part of, 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 of the job that humans are actually good at, which is, you know, the, the kind of like high level, like, Hey, I need to make this change, uh, yeah. uh, to, to the code base. So when you think about developer productivity and as you're talking about augmenting the developer's abilities and being able yeah. to take anybody on the street, well, maybe not on the street, but anybody that is in a software development role and then cutting out all of that cumbersome time that goes mm -hmm. into the researching of figuring out like what is actually going on here how can i read this code it's yeah. much more what i'm understanding is it's much more than just a co-pilot like experience where you're building out autocomplete and you, okay cool i'm going to write this function i'm going to add this to it what you're doing is you're helping interpret, you're helping answer questions, you're helping find different pieces in the code base that there's breadcrumbs that have been left behind. And so now yeah. as you think about developer productivity, I know you mentioned before we hit record that you feel like we're in this Gutenberg type moment. Can you explain that a little more? Definitely. Our, our, our core thesis is that the, the core of, of being a software creator uh, a, a programmer uh, by today's standards is is about understanding code and then writing new code based on that understanding. And so like that is that is the thing around which everything evolves. It's understanding source code and then outputting source code to build features and functionality for the the tool or product that you're you're creating. Um, and that should really be the centerpiece of all the other tools. Uh, that you use because that's the core kind of like inner cycle of, of what you do day to day uh, at, at, as a programmer. Your your job is 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 kind of going through this loop again and again of like understanding, uh, synthesizing the code into your kind of worldview, and then making an, an up, update to that worldview uh, by by editing the code. And so that's the tool that we're building. We we really think that this is a tool that will be kind of like the centerpiece of of most developers' workflows. Now. To your point, this kind of like Gutenberg moment, I think there's this question of like, what is a software developer in like five years or 10 years in, in the world of, of AI? And we actually think that there's, there's a huge uh, opportunity in front of us to kind of expand the franchise, so to speak, of the set of people in the world that are able to create software. Um, if you think about it, there's kind of like this tiny like priestly cast of people that you know can speak the the, the <laughs> yeah. language of of computers right now and and we call them programmers or software engineers and um 99 of people aren't able to do that so the way they interact with computers the way they're able to leverage the capabilities of computers to improve their daily lives is limited by the software that's created by that kind of like tiny priestly pre, pre, priestly uh cast and so uh, what happens in a world where we give that power of software creation, the ability to like customize behavior and implement your own functionality, implement your own automation, 
to the remaining 99% of the people in the world. And I think that's definitely within the realm of possibility now, given uh, the, the advent of large language models. Large language models are essentially like the world's best mechanical translators. They can translate from, you know, English to German uh, or to whatever human language uh, you prefer. And they're also great at translating natural human language into programming languages as well. And so I think in, in five to 10 years, we'll think about a much broader set of people being involved in the process of creating software and we'll need um, kind of like an entirely different way of thinking about uh, how that process goes and what sorts of people are making contributions to this kind of like code base. Her. Yeah, because if it's as easy as making an edit to Wikipedia, it's a whole different playing field, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I also, I like what you said, how it's almost like there's this elite class that understands what's going on when they look at GitHub and they yeah. are able to speak this language. And so if you're able, if you can bring that to the masses, what is that going to do for the products that we create? Yeah, a hundred percent. And we, we need tools that allow this translation to happen reliably. So I think, you know, uh, Today's world, it shows a lot of promise, but we're still not quite at the point where, you know, I can hand, uh, let's say, like my dad, a computer. He's not a, a programmer. He has no background in in programming training. Um, we're, we're still not at the point where he can go and basically talk to the machine and get it to implement some piece of uh, automation. Um, there's still like a little bit of debugging knowledge that you need to have, a little bit of uh, ability to kind of like manually adjust the, the, the code that uh, AI emits. Um, but I think, by building a system that has both LMs and this kind of notion of like checking correctness. Um, and mm -hmm. then that's one of the things that Sourcegraph has traditionally been good at because we have kind of like a, a compiler level understanding of, of the code. Um, you, you, can, you could envision a system that is able to kind of like iterate and self-correct on itself and reliably generate code that, you know, edits an existing piece of software based on some piece of natural language instruction. And so that'd be really cool because then, you know, I could say like, dad, like you don't like, uh, you're missing some feature in, uh, you know, Google search or, you know, some other piece of software you use Hey, go and like talk to your computer, describe what you want. And it will actually like figure out how to do the thing that you're trying to describe to it. Well, so here's where I find it funny because watching the different YouTube videos that talk about how <laughs> you can leverage LLMs to code now, or nobody needs to actually know how to program because you can use LLMs and that's all you need type thing. Yeah, yeah. But then they proceed to go into, okay, and then I just, you know, I create this regex expression and <laughs> you're like, wait a minute, how did you know how to create that reg? How did you know how yeah. to ask the LLM <laughs> for that specific thing? And it's like, yeah. you wouldn't know how to ask for these things or how to phrase your prompt unless yeah. you were actually a programmer. So it very much, in, in my eyes, is still at that clunky phase where, yeah, it's cool if you know what's going on, but if you don't yeah. know what's going on, you're still kind of SOL. Yeah, we're still in the early days. And right now, the, the immediate applications that are actually productionizable are still mostly for professional software engineers. Um, okay. I think it's it's kind of like those old cooking shows. Uh, if you remember you know, growing up, like, you know, the the person would like do all the prep work and show you how to chop the vegetables and like yeah. put everything in a bowl and they put something into the oven. And then like, 
you know, they take out immediately above it, like, hey, here's the fully formed, you know, souffle or whatever. And then you would do the same thing and yours would come out looking nothing like that. And you're like, okay, there were some steps that uh, were omitted in, in, in this process. And I think uh, right right now, humans still have to fill in those gaps and those humans uh, still have to understand uh, they have to be literate with programming languages. But I think in a couple of years, we'll get to the point where uh, we have systems that are reliable enough that can do kind of like the automatic checking uh, for you so that um, people who don't consider themselves professional programmers or software engineers can actually start um, being more reliable contributors to uh, code bases. Well, so what do you think then is the argument for why that hasn't happened in the low code no code movement because that's been around for a long time right and yeah i know i guess whenever i've used low code no code it's kind of like that same thing where i get overloaded with complexity or i still feel like you have to have a bit of a systems mentality or a systems way of thinking about it and a ton yeah. of patience to learn how the no code tool works yeah so I think traditional low-code, no-code tools uh, were an attempt at solving the complexity of software creation through the introduction of abstractions. Um, and th that's indeed how most people have tried to pare down the complexity of software development um, in, in any capacity, right? Like introduce a, an abstraction layer that hides some of the messy detail, prevents the user from shooting themselves in the foot, and kind of like guides them along a, a happy path of development. Um, I think the the challenge with with that approach is that uh, there is a cost to the abstraction, right? What you get is more guardrails, but it comes at the cost of expressivity. Um, and this mm -hmm. is something that people have noted again and again with with tools like that. It it works as long as you're trying to build the thing that they built in the demo, right? But yeah. as soon as your requirements go beyond what the platform uh, has anticipated supporting then you kind of hit a brick wall. There's no way to get around it or you have to you know, dive so much into the weeds um, that it, it would almost be easier to ask a professional engineer just to write it in, in kind of like a, a regular programming language. I think language models have a potential to create the best of both worlds where um, you know, maybe in the future uh, when, when you're trying to like build an application and you're not uh, a professional software engineer, you, you don't understand how to interpret you know, C or Java or uh, Python, um, you can just express uh, what you want in natural language just in, a, in the context of a regular code base. So there's no like no code or low code platform. There's no piece of abstraction sitting between you and the code. Um, but what you're doing is you're articulating what you want in a natural language. It's generating code for you. It automatically checks that it works. Um, and then it can kind of explain back to you the code that it generated, uh, sort of explaining, you know, the the detailed things it's doing. How does that relate back to your your high level piece of instruction? Okay. Uh, and so I think that is to me uh, a, a much more compelling vision of, of the future because th then we can have our cake and eat it too. We we, we can have everyone uh, be involved in in the process of software creation without sacrificing any of the exp expressivity or the power of um you know a, a raw turing complete programming language yeah those guardrails that it, it's exactly that like you try and mess around with it it's a lot of the same complaints that people have when they're using a managed service it's like the best part of a managed service yeah. is that it's managed the worst part of a managed service is it's managed so you can't get 
underneath the hood when you really need to and you want to go and that maybe 80% of the time it's magical and then the 20% of the time you're like I really wish I could just turn a few knobs and change a few things on this yep absolutely so when you think about how you're building especially Cody I wonder if you undoubtedly you've gotten into the idea of what if we could just make agents that would go and do what people want done before they even have to go and do it themselves yeah have you gone down that path yeah uh absolutely i think agents are all the rage right now um and i think there's a ton of potential there i I think there there is a future where we have a bunch of these agents and I, i think of them more as um they're just computer systems, right? At the end of the day, where the input is some piece of uh, human instruction, uh, likely natural language, and then a, a series of actions uh, that that performs on behalf of the human, uh, involving and it could be human in the loop or human out of the loop. So you know, either completely automated or uh, kind of like asking you for feedback along the way. Um, I think the world we live in today. Uh, well, I guess I would I would say like, okay, like that's the end state, right? And the question is, how do we get there? And I think what you kind of have to do is you have to start with kind of like the building blocks. Like what are the building blocks of, of agents? So agents are these kind of like multi-step things that happen in response to a query or, or a prompt. Um, in order to get to multi-step, we have to start with reliability at a single step of that process. And we're still in the stage where that single step process is still fairly unreliable. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about language models being quote unquote usefully wrong uh, in, in the sense that like, you know, they will hallucinate yeah. from time to time. They will mess up from time to time, but it's okay because they're still more useful than not. Like even if it invents an API that doesn't exist, uh, you as a human can can still be like, ah, you know, that doesn't exist. But like the rest of the code you, you wrote is still helpful. I can pattern match against that. That's good. Once you start trying to compose those into longer and longer chains of thought, the reliability and the accuracy does tend to matter more. Because think about each each time, you, each step of the process, you're you're rolling you're rolling the dice, so to speak. And if if you hit an error mode, then your thing will quickly go off the rails. And so for a one hop process, you know seventy percent reliability, maybe that's tolerable because it, it works well enough uh, most of the time. But once you're, you know, three or four steps uh, into it, you know, what's, you know, 0.7 to the the fourth or fifth power at some point decays to zero. Yep. And so I think where we are with agents right now is we're still we're still at the point in in working with language models um, where the longer chains of thought are, are just too unreliable to rely on for day to day use or production use. Um, I think we're, we're maybe still at least a year away from there. And, and what it, what it's going to take to get more reliability, I think, number one, is improvements to the model layer. So uh, training and fine-tuning models to be more... Uh, Agent-friendly. Uh, yeah. Agent-friendly, exactly. Or like domain-specific. Like if, if, you're, if you're training an agent to use APIs, right? Like there's a lot you could... There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, I think, left for for enabling these to, to be better users of APIs and to generate working code. And then there's also, you know, figuring out how to compose them with other systems, uh, like things that might do static checks or check the correctness of the output um, and uh, uh, might fetch information or context, you know, like Sourcegraph does uh, for the agent to help improve the accuracy. Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's a clear stack 
for agents yet. And there, if it does feel like on the other hand, we're getting a stack for using LLMs and that is becoming like vector database is the champion in this one. And then you've got <laughs> yeah. your, you've got your SDK libraries and maybe you've got some prompting or some explainability or some kind of tool to keep the guardrails on. But, and then of course the large language model is, is there and ever present. Yeah. yeah. But when it comes to agents, I feel like what you just described there hasn't been, or maybe I just don't spend enough time diving into the tooling around agents. Yeah. But it, there hasn't been that idea of like, here's a clear design pattern when you're trying to use agents. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's largely because no one has figured out how to do it reliably enough. Yeah. And so there is no like example of like, hey, like this works awesomely and it supports all these things in production. It at, at the point in which like that becomes a thing, then I think there, there will be like at least a few open source projects or frameworks that emerge where it's like, okay, we can point to at least one application that makes use of us that people use day to day or they rely on in a production environment. And I think right now um, it's mostly just ad hoc. Like everyone building with language models is kind of building their own proto frameworks uh, internally because we're still experimenting exactly what combination works well in practice you did mention one thing when it comes to dealing with agents and how you feel like there's a lot of possibility for creating a fine-tuned model that just deals with apis or api creation yep. when you were building cody are you using gpt on the back end are you using claude did you bring it all in-house and are you using a open source llm yeah so we we use llms in a few different places in 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 Cody. Uh, so for the code generation and the chat based uh, uh, ge generation, so the Q and A, we can use either Claude uh, from Anthropic or uh, GPD from OpenAI. Um, we're also planning on supporting some of the newer open source, you know, Lala based models uh, there as well. Uh, and then for the retrieval aspect of it, which is you know generating embeddings and using those for search. Um, we're, we're using a combo of open AI embeddings and uh, open source embeddings uh, uh -huh. that we've kind of fine-tuned for our uh, purposes. And so we are kind of getting into the model layer, um, and we've been a little bit circumspect about investing there because I think there's just, there's a lot of good stuff available off the shelf currently, and in working with these things, we think a lot of the low-hanging fruit is still in the realm of r retrieval augmentation. So, like, how can we improve the the quality of the context that we feed into the models? And so, I don't think we've exhausted that yet. And the fact of the matter is, you're just you're able to iterate much more quickly when you're only dealing with model inference and feeding in different pieces of context and playing around with the context re retrieval mechanisms than training a, a model or fine-tuning a model because that involves a whole cycle of like gathering data, cleaning the data, Fing. running the fine-tuning, seeing the outputs. Um, and so we probably will get there eventually, but right now we're, we're mostly a, a retrieval augmentation shop. I always joke that fine-tuning is something that sounds so good when you say it and everybody's <laughs> just kind of like throwing it out there like, yeah, our next step is we're going to fine-tune a model. And it's like, do you know what goes into fine-tuning? Have you really <laughs> tried to do this before? Because it's not like just uploading your photo to Lexica and then getting yeah. like some cool shit 
passed back to you 15 minutes later. That's not fine-tuning. As much as stable diffusion may have made you think it is, that's not really <laughs> what it is with LLMs. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like a, I, I feel like I've seen it in some capacities where it almost seems like a marketing uh, play yeah. where like, oh, we're doing the real AI because <laughs> we're, we're fine-tuning. And, I, you know, I think we will get to fine-tuning at, at some point, but um, we have this mindset, you know, like like I said in the very beginning, like when you're getting into AI, uh, like my recommendation would be start with the easy things first, start with the things that have the ability to add uh, immediate value. And so how are you dealing with rate limits and followers or failovers like what do you do about that when all of a sudden open ai yeah. or claude doesn't want to respond anymore and you're just like well guess we can't call support well actually we, we can call support so we have uh you know good strong uh enterprise relationships with both anthropic and open ai in place and so oh, you're the lucky ones who are <laughs> I suppose we are. Um, the, both both of them have been very helpful uh, as, as we've as we've kind of built out and, and scaled Cody up. Um, but the short answer is that it's just like another external API, right? Like if, if you're a product that has any sort of external or cloud dependency, um, this is something that you have to manage as, as part of your platform. And there is downtime at some points. Um, and that's something that you have to convey to your customers that like, you know, now and then um, yeah, there, there might be downtime in service. Um, I think, the the good news is that we're still in kind of like the early days of AI. So uh, a lot of folks do have kind of like a general tolerance of like, hey, you know, it, it is kind hey. of like the wild, wild west right now and, and things are moving quickly. So, you know, if things go go down for a period of time or, or there's some turbulence along the way, then that's just part of the, the journey. Well, I feel like you already are doing a lot more than most people think about when you have... Claude and ChatGPT or just GPT to hit. Mm -hmm. And so I guess you can load balance a little bit that way. Yeah. I think uh, one of our philosophies is we do want to support um, multiple language models because, uh, you know, not just for kind of like the reliability and, and robustness side of things, but, you know, as as new models get released, we want to be able to incorporate the, the latest and greatest uh, into Cody. But you're not... Like if I am playing with Cody, I'm not getting both of those answers, am I? It's just hitting one of the APIs or are Correct. you, because I imagine there's a lot of roads we could go down when it comes to evaluation and how you're evaluating which yeah. ones are better and. Yeah. Uh, so right now you're getting either one of those. We're not doing both. We're not trying to like compare and contrast anything at, at flight time. Um, I think part of it is just it was easier to implement that that way. Um, and then another part of it is also, you know, I said before, you know, context is all you need. Um, yeah. And what we found is there are differences between uh, the two models uh, in, in terms of what their relative strengths are. Um, but by and large, the, the context is what makes the difference. And so, like, the, 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 the differences in terms of, like, how good it is at generating code in this language or that, they largely... Um, diminish or, or even manage uh, once the context fetching quality is good enough in a given language because what the model then does is just pattern match against the the snippets that you feed it um, and so it relies a lot less upon its kind of like unique memorized uh, knowledge yeah that's fascinating so it really gives it less roads to travel or I almost look at it as your 
closing the possibilities that it can answer back with. You don't give it anything. Yeah. It's not like, hey, answer me with anything that you've been trained on. It's like very, very <laughs> specific. And the more specific that you can give it, the more specificity that you can give yeah. it, the better it's going to be and the more accurate it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it, like the rough analogy is like, let's say you had two humans and they're both pretty smart. Um, and one might be better at, you know, Python and the other one might be better at Ruby, but you give both of them access to, uh, you know, a, a code search engine or, or something like Google. And then you ask them to, to answer a, a question. The answers are going to be a lot closer if they have access to the search engine uh, than if you ask them to just like, you know, write it from memory or answer a question from memory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I know we've went way over time, so I want to thank you for being incredibly open about all of this. And for anybody out there that has not tried Cody, highly encourage it. Have some fun. Go and play around with it. Bring it into your code base and see if it will tell you why you can't delete that one fucking function that's been there since the beginning of time. (laughs) And, and let us know, too, if you end up trying it out. We have a Discord that's available, and we love to hear feedback, especially the critical feedback that allows us to, to make the product better. Um, and uh, thank you, Demetrios, for having me on. This was uh, an awesome conversation. Had a lot Excellent. of fun. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to feedback, I was thinking about that. When you do start incorporating Llama in there, I imagine that's going to be excellent if you can run them both at the same time. And you can say, all right, yeah. we've got Claude and we've got Llama. Which one was better? <laughs> Yeah. And then you can start seeing like, or you can start training, fine tuning. <laughs> it's just as easy as a fine tune, dude. You, It's all good. <laughs> uh, your llama model. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can anyway. ask them to rate each other too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Anyway, yeah. that's it. That's the pod. We'll end it there. Uh, thanks, man. All right. Cheers.